Welcome to Stempunk. My name's Tom, and we have uh, a guest with us today, as usual, and we're going to talk about STEM. That's what we do. Uh, so, instead of me introducing our guest, I will get you, sir, to introduce yourself, because you're probably better at it than me. Uh, so, let's go. Who are you? What do you do? Okay, uh, my name's Paul, um, and uh, Paul Loyan, and I uh, am a science educator I have for the last, what, 25 years. I've taught both uh, here in Australia, but also number of years in the States. Um, so my expertise or specialty is physics, though interestingly enough, my major at university was biology, anatomy and physiology. Um, so really my physics is my passion. Um, so much so that uh, five years ago I actually started a YouTube channel, uh, what is now called Physics High, was called High School Physics Explained, and really about uh, really uh, expressing, communicating physics at a level that a high schooler can understand. So it's open to anyone. I mean, I get people watching who are 70 or 80 year olds and 10 year olds, um, but I try to pitch it in a way that a high schooler can, can gra grasp the content. So. I guess with your videos, it's also not only that they can understand, but it's applicable to their studies, right? So yeah. It's so syllabus based. Yeah. So initially, it really just started as a, um, as just an opportunity as wanting to provide you know work for students who were away so i started with this technology called swivel i'm not sure if you're familiar with it but basically you set up a camera and you dongle a, a, a sort of microphone around your neck but this dongle causes causes the camera to actually track you as you move across the classroom which is i thought okay and uh but in one sense i found it very i guess amateurish um it was just me teaching in front of the classroom. I guess a bit like Eddie Wu with maths. Yep, yep. Um, and I actually wanted something a little bit more polished. So I decided to spend time making videos, again, for my students' content, um, covering the New South Wales syllabus uh, initially anyway, uh, but a bit higher production value. So initially screen recording and so forth, but I've morphed, morphed now into sort of live camera stuff, roving stuff, a whole mix that I do. Um, but I still use the on-screen drawing and stuff like that to explain concepts. A bit like what Khan Command Academy does, but now you actually see me and I try to make it my own anim animations and try to make it interesting. So um, puts yeah, a lot more energy, but I feel like the work is more polished and I pace it, not too rushed. So a um, lot of good video content out there. Um, but some of it's really fast, like, oh, let's, hey, let's, let's see if we can do Schrodinger in under two minutes. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> I think sometimes students need a little bit more time spacing. And so, yes, it's a bit longer, but more easily absorbed, if that makes sense. So, so what's the origin story? <laughs> Why did you do it? So, a apart apart <clears throat> from just making better value content for yep. your students, yep. did you do it to then make heaps of videos for all over the world? and make a living from that it morphed there i mean i don't make a living i have to say i'm not quite <laughs> that popular just yet but it initially was just for my student because i started thinking more of a developing a flipped approach to education so i'm a big believer in flipped education if it's run well i'm not sh sure whether the listeners are familiar with flipped education but in essence what you're doing is you're getting the students to learn the content through videos at home but then the classroom is devoted to experiences uh, elaboration, you know, asking questions, experiments and so forth, as opposed to the normal traditional stuff, which is the other way around. You know, you practice your homework at home, but you get the content delivery in classroom. Well, this is flipped. And so what that means is you can, the students can then pace their learning at their pace. Um, 
because they can stop the video and take notes and rewind and all that sort of stuff. So that's how it started, really developing a flipped approach. But I started very slowly. I mean, it was the end of 2015 that I started. And then I found that um, come beginning of 2016, I started getting a few more views from beyond scope of my students and, you know, locally. I mean, YouTube's a slow, gradual growth. And then I thought, well, maybe I can do this more to develop this in terms of bigger scope. Um, one of the things where I've really, I found I started getting some traction, um, at least in a small way, was I produced content for the medical physics content where, you know, you're dealing with topics such as the MRI, how it works, PET scans, and also some of the uh, interesting aspects of the New South, New South Wales syllabus at the time, such as um, band for example, structure. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was one of my very earliest videos. And all of a sudden, that's my biggest video at the moment. Um, but I'm actually getting feedback from university students. It's like, oh, wow, my teacher, my never learned this. Or, you know, at, at university, this has actually made sense. It's And so forth. And same with the medical stuff. I'm getting students from India <laughs> studying radiology and saying, oh, this video has been really helpful. So, those sorts of things made me morph away from just concentrating my students to something broader. But behind it all, I've always used my uh, physics content from the classroom as a guide to what I produce. But, you know, I'm, I often find I'm trying to produce videos beyond that as well. So if, I, if there's a passion that I really love doing, producing videos, is actually the two extremes. So I love cosmology, the big stuff. And I love the really small modern physics, quantum stuff. So uh, the extremes, in fact, there were two specialties at university. So, um, you know, those are the areas I'd like to grow even more in because those are the fascinating aspects of physics, I think. I mean, all physics is interesting and fascinating, but the really stored where there's still lots of questions to be answered is where I'd like to continue to produce more content. I love uh, the, uh, the idea of, you know, there's heaps of questions there are, and sometimes it's the simplest questions that can break down, you know, an entire, or not, no, I, I play this game called Confuse a Physicist, and it's the simplest question where you don't really get a straight answer from a scientist or a physicist. Things like, you know, what is mass? <laughs> um, how big is an electron? You know, things like that. What's a particle? What is That's a right. particle, yeah. These, these questions... <coughs> I mean, they have they have their textbook answers, but if you ask a scientist, they just it's uh, you know hands start to wave because we don't have an extremely good understanding of what these things are. You know, we've got a pretty good understanding of what mass is, but we could be wrong about that. Or what is time? Mm. You know, things like that. Really, that's a tough question, uh, and there's an entire field of science that devotes itself to thinking about these questions as well. I really like that. I like that. You know, you get. That's that's part of your motivation. It's really cool. I like the flip learning stuff too. There's there's actually a whole bunch of research that backs up. Yeah, it does. Flip yeah, lectures it does. work. I haven't like all read the research. In fact, uh, one of my uh, uh, friends who I met last year overseas, she had done actually a sort of collective research article about the, what the different research about flipped learning. And her conclusion was simply, yes, it is effective um, as long as it's run well. Mm. You know, you can't just say, okay, watch the video and not follow <laughs> yeah. it up and yeah. ask questions, you know, because students inevitably don't watch the video and I still get that's probably the biggest issue with flipped learning. Okay, so I've got two more questions about the work you do, then we'll yeah. get into our other questions. Mm. Firstly, um, uh, one non-controversial and one controversial. Be prepared. Okay. When you're making videos, you've clearly spent a lot of time 
time thinking about not only the content, but how to teach it and the technologies you use yep. uh, or the techniques you use to, to teach that. Drawing, green screens, yep. sound editing, video editing, yep. all of that sort of stuff. What's some of the surprising stuff that you've learned by doing videos and stuff that you want to know more about from from doing videos about. So this. in terms of the process, the, yeah, the process, the the the, the technologies you use, the, the things you've learned about making and uploading and creating a video. Number of things, I think. Um, I mean, and I'm literally riffing. For example, my very earliest videos, there were lots of ums and ahs, and I think um, what I've learned is the importance of flow, good timing. So, you know, if there's a video where there's a long break and there are lots of ums and ahs, it actually disrupts the flow. So tight editing is important. I think now I've become, particularly in the last uh, six months or so, because my early videos were all just screenwriting like Khan Academy stuff, is actually to be present in the video. For example, seeing my face is important, even though... You know, I, you might see me on the bottom of the screen. You actually can see what I'm writing behind me, and it allows a visual connection. And I've, you know, did a bit of re reading about that, and it actually provides um, it actually provides a greater connection to the learning process. So, for example, you know, don't quote me on the research articles, but I know that there's uh, some evidence when students see some aspect of the human body, they have a greater attention. So even if it's just a hand across the screen, as opposed to simply dot and a pencil going across the screen, that actually engages the student better and, and retention. So that's what I do by actually being in the video. I think that's important. That's one thing I think that's really important. I tell you what, it's something actually Derek Muller basically mentioned, uh, well, not mentioned to me. The couple of things with that uh, Derek um, has said once, he he spoke to me personally just via video feed, and uh, and the other one was something he actually mentioned in his early videos, and that is is wow them right at the beginning. You know, don't leave the, the I guess, the, the climax of the thing right at the end because you're going to lose your thing. And so I've made an effort in my production to actually m make it really engaging right in the beginning, even if it's just posing a question. Even if it's something silly, uh, almost comical, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one of my videos on on work energy theorem, I actually start off the video of me trying to pull up a trailer and failing miserably, and then dropping a leaf, and then I basically say, well, I did more work dropping the leaf than I actually tried to move the trailer, and it was, you know, I had sort of funny, you know, comical music behind it. Yeah. It was just to say, okay, what this is about. So, yeah, sure. Um, so I appreciate Derek's input in there. The other thing too, ask the question to no one else is asking. For example, um, uh, when Derek finished his video on the black hole, I asked him about it and he said, no one's asking the questions of why that black hole is that particular shape, like the interstellar movie. No one's actually addressed that. So, of course, he produces a video and, and so forth. And so, for example, when I was doing my research for Schrodinger, it's a equation. And it was one that was really in my head for a long time. Um, how am I going to do Schrodinger's equation to a level the high school can understand? I knew I would skirt a little bit behind, uh, beyond it, but I really discovered that not many were doing the connection. Okay, here's Schrodinger's equation. This is basically what it means. It's a bit like F equals MA, end of story. And then others said, well, Schrodinger's equation, of course, gives you a little bit about electron clouds and so forth, but not many people put the two together. Yeah. And so I really made an effort to concentrate, okay, how I can put together. And so hopefully that was successful in that video. Same with Maxwell's equations. Too many dealt with the differential equations and so mm -hmm, forth. Mm -hmm. How does a high schooler approach Maxwell's equations? What do the equations say without really 
confusing them with the equations and what are the implications of that. You know, that sort of stuff. History of the Speed of Light is another one that I did that actually got uh, a bit of growth, which is really good. But again, not a lot of videos that said, well, what, you know, how was light measured in the last three, 300 years and mm -hmm. so forth. Those are the two things that, you know, hit them with something that's interesting and ask the questions that no one's asking. And I'm still working on that. And I'm still thinking, how can I tackle physics concepts in a way that is actually I'm answering a question that hasn't been actually asked before or hasn't been addressed in a particular way before. Great answer. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, okay, so controversial question. Yeah. I guess it's not so controversial. It would have been about a year ago. What are your thoughts on the, well, let's still call it the, the new syllabus. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Like, honestly or not? What do you, know, what do you think about the, the physics syllabus in, in Australia? Or the science syllabus in Australia, we've we've had to deal with the, the change. I know I know you have had input into that development of that as, as a did little I. bit in terms of you know providing feedback and yep. so forth. The reality as an educator, you're so busy teaching content and so forth to then have that time to look through the documentation mm. is tough. And I know that Nessa, for example, here in New South Wales, they're always looking for feedback and you provide feedback and so forth. But in essence, you need good thinking time to really put, say what's well, is good and so forth. If you were to ask me that, what do I think of the yep. new syllabus? I think it's great. There's always room for improvement. You know, the first question I would have is, you know, what is it trying to achieve? Yep. And does it achieve that? Yep. And in some ways it really does. But in other ways, I don't think it does. Yeah. I could elaborate on that. But, you know, I've got some ideas. What, do you, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What yeah. do you think of the new syllabus? I think it's a great improvement on the old syllabus. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to the old syllabus, I think if I would say what the old syllabus intend, intent was, is to gauge more students for physics, which means engaging students who might not take physics because they want to go to university, but you want to give them a scientific literacy. In that sense, it was good. But a lot of teachers complained about almost the Englishification, Englishification, if that's a word, mm -hmm. of the syllabus. You know, you know, assess the, you know, the impact of on society and culture of the transformer or something like that. And I think removing those is a good thing because I think, and my father-in-law is an academic; he's a physics, retired physics lecturer, uh, a prof associate professor for Western University, and he was his concern was that the old syllabus wasn't preparing students well for university level, and I agree with that. Um, the new syllabus, I think, does a better job. Um, I think, in one sense, it's more hardcore physics as proper physics, and they've removed those elements that almost uh, the, you know, uh, the social society and culture aspects of it. Um, I don't think that will necessarily drop student numbers overall. I think the physics numbers have relatively stayed reasonably stable. There's slight decline, but it's not you know, super exciting, but it hasn't had a major shift. Um, so I think ultimately, I think it's good in that sense. The real thing I really like this, there's two things I like. Uh, one is a greater inclusion of modern physics. I mean, it's all good to say classical physics, but physics today, physics research, place that really is exciting, you know, um, I'm sorry, Newton's laws is important and so forth. But if you say that's an area of research and get kids excited about physics, well, no, not <laughs> that. it's there. But if you say, okay, now we get to talk about standard model and everyone does it, it's not just elective, it's fantastic. The fact that we can talk about cosmology and spectral, uh, spectra analysis and all that sort of stuff and ask those big questions that do with modern physics, mm -hmm. whether it's the big stuff or the small stuff, I think is great. 
And so I like that. The second thing I really like is the inclusion of depth studies. Again, initially, the lot of stu- a lot of educators were concerned about how that would play out. But I think it opens the door for students to explore something that they're interested in. I mean, obviously, how it runs in the schools is different and so forth. Uh, and sometimes depth studies can be done well. Sometimes they can be not done so well. But it engages. And I think I want to I want to share a story that relates to this. Yeah. It's not necessarily a depth study from Australian context, but it fits very well. So I met uh, a guy, uh, I was at CERN last year, and I met uh, a guy named Dave Fish. Dave Fish basically is one of the chief, uh, I guess, consultants, education consultants at the Perimeter Institute in Toronto. So he presented to us at CERN. And he told us a story which really, I, I guess, um, I think, captured my attention and he said he had a student he went in high school he had a student who was itching for doing something and was a little bit you know a little bit blase didn't know what she wanted to do and so forth and he basically gave her a depth study in the canadian sense and and got her to research something about what um, uh, dark matter is and so she went into that and produced something that really excited her passion Mm -hmm. it excited Mm -hmm. her passion so much that um, she decided to do physics as a degree and then she decided to go into particle physics and then she decided to do a PhD and got an internship at CERN, of all places, to work (coughs) with the ATLAS project. Um, And basically, for her, the turning point was that Dark Matter project. Yeah, sure. You know, and then (coughs) uh, sitting at CERN, I was speaking to Dave and he was speaking to a girl And she's saying to Dave, I was listening to the conversation, Dave was sitting next to me, and he said, she said, oh, I'm all this excited about Atlas work and stuff like this, and I don't know what I want to do now. Maybe I want to do another project that is happening on the other aspect of CERN. She's there now full time, right, this girl. And then he turned to me after she left, she said, that's the girl. (laughs) That was the girl. And I was like, whoa, you know, the teacher had the opportunity to direct her, something of passion, and now she's going great guns, and she's now permanently working at CERN, doing what she loves. Yeah, sure. And that's what I think is great here, what we can do here. And that includes with the science extension course now as well, which I think I'm really passionate about. Sometimes that's all teacher needs to do is to give them some direction and you can make a difference. And I think as an educator, that's the thing that also drives me in one sense. You know, I recently had a um, someone, I posted, I have a blog and I posted about the fact that there's a high dropout rate for physics teachers or any teacher for that matter. Uh, they get burnt out really quickly, and I had a I had a, uh, a student teacher come to me and you know said they dropped out because they didn't get any support, and so I I post posted that and I got lots of feedback, lots of teachers struggling and so forth. I I want to add the fact that sometimes when you get that one student who like this student here, that makes it all worth it. You know when you're what you're doing changes something. You know I had a student that when I started the school I'm at, basically my arrival and I'm, I'm not big noting myself but I connected with him and he loved physics all of a sudden and then went to into you know university and he's now a teacher yeah cool right so it's like you know it's when you have those you can have lots of kids that who forget you and so forth and are frustrating but when you teach something and you switch someone on with that concept whatever it is and it they take it and run with it that makes it worthwhile I am um and I think the syllabus does that. I think it has the opportunity to do that. So I was a teacher for a while and I, I went to a conference and I was talking about a certain thing at a teacher's conference. And 
at my uh, at that conference was my old teacher in physics, and we uh, in my family we had a nickname for him. He was Wise Jim. <laughs> he was just wise. So he was yeah he was my science teacher. He was at the conference, and I started my presentation uh, just totally off the cuff, and I just said, just want to recognise um, my. You know, high school physics teacher is here. And on behalf of all of us, <laughs> thank you, Jim. <laughs> and I called him out and I said, Jim, there he is. Stand up. Take this round of applause for you because you deserve it, man. <laughs> That's cool. Very cool. That's- uh, go on. Tell me your concerns if, um, if you want. Oh, look, and I would say if they've had any concerns for the syllabus, it would be this still a heck of a lot content. So I think I think we're still in the early days, but currently the issue for a lot of educators, and this is not just for physics, it's for all the disciplines, is that the syllabus now no longer mentions like identify, explain, and so forth. In other words, prescribing to the depth of the content we're going to cover. It's analyze this, analyze that, yep, describe, yep. In, you know, investigate, which means that a lot of educators are basically saying, well, how deep do I go? How do it? Yeah, how do it yeah, yeah. How do you mark that? How do you mark that? And yeah, yeah and and what? But the point ish issue is is you know okay, it's all good to say you know from the powers that be. Well, you go to the depth that you feel comfortable going to, and go you know you can go to whatever depth. But at the end of the day, they still sit an external exam. Yeah, and I think what we seem to be morphing towards. I think if the syllabus didn't have an external exam at the end. In other words, it was just school-based assessment and you have some way of moderating that to allow teachers some flexibility to the depth to explore. I think that would be a fantastic thing. I think the new syllabus allows for that. So you say, oh, student, look, I'm really, really fascinated about this photoelectric thing. Can we explore that a bit more? What, what, are, what are other evidences yeah. of that? You know, like, And I go, Compton. Yeah. That's a great example that yeah. you could embed there and discuss and explore and say why that's so important. It's not there, right? So, but at the moment, you're you're restricted by the tyranny. We have an external exam in the two years' time that you cover the content. And so, therefore, teachers have to make judgments as to, I'm going to cover this, I'm going to cover this, then, but they're a little bit hazy in terms of the depth. Now, that actually happened too in 2000 and 2001 with the new syllabus mm. at that time, the uncertainty. And yeah, as you sure. start seeing more and more exams out coming out, then the teachers became more confident, okay, that's the depth that's required and so forth. We haven't had that yet. So I think as we see more exams coming out, we'll have that sense of that's the depth that required and so forth. But I think, you know, being controversial... I think there's a good argument for scrapping the whole external exam idea mm-hmm. and allow the students the freedom to explore the depth that they want and allow the teachers some say in that. Because at the end of the day, if they end up missing a particular content point in the syllabus, but you've ignited them for physics mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. to university to do whatever, they'll pick that up. Yeah. There's no problems. Yeah. You know, um, so what if you haven't covered a particular, let's say, simple harmonic motion, which happens isn't, isn't in the syllabus at the moment, but let's say you didn't cover that, whatever. And, well, they can pick that up. But if you're driven by the tyranny, we've got to cover this because of this exam, mm, mm. because of the ATAR, whatever, and so forth, if you end up turning away students who not, you know, like that girl I mentioned before, who didn't get that opportunity, what a loss. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, so in a nutshell, I think the syllabus is good. 
But I think the tyranny of an external exam is still something. I think that's probably the bigger issue. Yeah, sure. Um, to free it up, you know, and and there's New South Wales. So if you look at, New, at Western Australia or Queensland, they don't have that. So they, you know, it's it's a little bit more freed up, I think. And I, you know, we'd be curious to see what will happen now with with the education review by Jeff Masters and yeah. see if there's going to be any change on that. I like the syllabus. That mm. I know amongst some of the people that I deal with, that's an unpopular opinion, but I like the syllabus because it's forced us to think about what we teach and how we teach it. Uh, and that can only be a good thing, mm. if you ask me. That's true. The biggest thing I think they've missed is that they have missed an absolute opportunity to include more women in the physics syllabus. <laughs> yes, I've, I've heard, I've heard I've you even, say that before. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. Um, and there are so many great scientists who are women within all the yep. disciplines. You know, yep. Henry we, we wrote a list. <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, um, yeah Catherine Johnson. There's, I mean, there's lots of people yep. that you could mention. And granted, you know, if you look at the historical records, you know, the proportion of male physicists is higher than female physicists or whatever. But you know the reason for that. Huh? Oh, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> but all I'm saying is that's not an excuse. Absolutely not. And so as a result, if you want to engage women into physics fields, traditionally still only 20% of students yep. do physics that are female. That's that's not equitable. I, and, I, and I think, unfortunately... That's contributed to an almost uh, male-orientated view of physics that I think needs to be corrected. And I disagree with the process that you're saying that Nessa might say, okay, oh, well, that's up to teachers. No, I think we need to go top down. And yeah, say, yeah. Show me, show me all the time that a teacher has to, to do that as well as the syllabus. Correct. <laughs> you know, like make a point of it. Yeah, you know? for sure. I mean, the fact that Marie Curie is not even mentioned, mm. right? I mean, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I, I mean, look, even if you put Marie Curie in it, and it's probably tokenism, at least do it. Yeah, Maybe yeah. tokenism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about radioactivity. How do we know about radioactivity? Well, Henri Becquerel and Marie Curie. Yeah. Like, hello. I mean, and then, you know, Lisa Meitner, when you talk about efficient, she's the one I tell my students. I said, it's Lisa Meitner that is responsible yeah. for going, oh, my goodness, yeah. this is fission going on. Yeah, and yeah. let's call it after... You know, biological fission. Like, she's the one who made that discovery. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. she's completely dropped out of it. Yeah. You know? So, I agree with you. That That's the biggest mm. miss, yeah. Yeah. I think, that the syllabus has. There are, there are others, but that's the biggest And it's an easy fix. It's a modification that we can easily fix. Yeah. And as, as well as, you know, in inviting women into physics, it's also, we're missing out on so much good stuff by not having... You know, the example I use all the time is, you know, we talk about the Hafiel Keating experiment, yeah. which is an important experiment, but not more important than a bunch of other experiments done by other people, including women. Hmm. Uh, you know, why are we learning about the Hafiel Keating experiment? Sure, it's good, but there are other experiments that we could talk about. Hmm. Just, um, we're just saying, what's the evidence for time dilation? Really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's lots of exactly. things you could pick up on. That's right. Anyway, so that's yeah. the biggest thing I think they've missed. Yes. And, and I will keep saying that. Um, all right, let's move on to our question, which I ask uh, everyone on the podcast, which is, what does STEM mean to you? So STEM doesn't mean to me. Like, if in a broadest philosophical type of sense, it's really saying, look, when we're engaging with science, technology, engineering, mathematics, what we're saying is 
we're trying to solve problems. We're trying to come solutions to everyday problems, and we're using the tools of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to solve that problems. So if you're going to really boil down terms of the curriculum of a whole having STEM subjects, it's the same. Can okay? Can we educate by doing a project-based learning, for example? I think the for all the good things that that STEM does, I there are still lots of things to iron out. Um, I don't think it can teach STEM in deference to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics as a separate entity. So I don't think STEM in that sense of um, of a subject is, I think there still needs to be a lot to be working, working out. Um, but in the big sense of this, um, I think we can easily compartmentalize and say, well, science has got nothing to do with mathematics, mathematics has got nothing to do with engineering and technology. No, actually, the real world actually works in cohesion. The fact is, is that STEM is about applying all of those things to solve problems. I guess um, in one sense, a lot of, I think for the beauty of STEM, if, if you be educate the concept of STEM as a philosophical way of construct in terms of solving everyday problems, and all of those are important in advancing basically um, I guess, our, our human understanding and, and, and technology and all that sort of stuff, I think is lost amongst a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a good example mm -hmm. that relates to this. So on my YouTube, I have a few videos on CERN because I've not been there. And inevitably, I get lots of crackpot concepts and saying, well, I from it's the gates of hell and so forth, we won't get into that content. Sure. But another thing, what a waste of money. Mm -hmm. And then I say to them, or inevitably I don't because I just don't go into the conversation, but I, I ponder on it and saying, you know what, that same person, if they get medical uh, issues such as cancer and they get a PET scan, they don't realize that the reason that they are able to get a PET scan to get a diagnosis and gamma cameras and gamut is because of technology and science that happens at CERN, for example. You know, the fact that you can make comments on the internet yeah. is because someone actually invented the internet <laughs> at, CERN. at CERN. You know, <laughs> uh, touchscreens, again, at CERN. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. People somehow think that they benefit from the technologies and they benefit from the engineering and the things that we get out of it and don't realize that is it is based on a theoretical understanding of everything that's underneath it. You know, the fact that we have radar and it made a big difference in World War II is because of people such as Bardeen and uh, uh, Stifley and so forth who were working on semiconductors and all that sort of stuff to understand it that allowed us to do that. Yeah. And they think, oh, well, this is science and it's a waste of money. And they don't realize the fact that it actually has ramifications on their lives, whether they like it or not. And I think in terms of STEM, if people more understand of how that works that science contributes to technology and technology contributes to science and contributes to engineering and engineering contributes back to science and all of that is underpinned by mathematics as a holistic thing, if people develop a better understanding of that, and that leads really to not only what we would say is scientific literacy in the classroom, but literacy in all of those areas, a STEM literacy, one for a better word, mm -hmm. I think we get better citizens in you know i don't care if my students enter the 
leave high school and don't take up physics. I mean, of course, I'd love to have a student take up physics. But if all my students have actually a greater appreciation of scientific literacy, of STEM literacy, because it's not just about science, it's about how those three things, those four things interplay, is that they're then going to make decisions that support that. And they're going to shoot down all the crap that is, you know, that they might get of people who don't have that. Yeah. In other words, they provide to the conversation to that, you know, and they actually may actually elect decision makers who follow that principle, you know? And I think um, we see that today in the world, particularly now with all that, you know, um, and I'm not talking about necessarily politics and so forth, but if you look at any discussion about COVID-19, any discussion, it's filled, you know, vaccination, talking about any aspect of science, there's such an ignorance that's there. And I think it's not just science, it's STEM as a whole of understanding of the importance of all of that in advancement, you know? Oh, why do we Elon Musk sending rockets up into space? But they don't realize that there's so many offshoots that come out of that that is beneficial to them as a whole, as a society. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. I, th- yeah. I, I really, really like that. I like the... Uh, it's very concise to say, we want to have a community that does not ask the question, is this, is this a waste of money? Hmm. I think, you know, boiling it down, you're, you're essentially saying, let's not have people that ask, is that a waste of money? I think that's that's super super cool. That's mm. very very cool. Wouldn't it be great mm. if we could we could build ex- experiments that that ask deep questions. Some of them blue sky questions, some of them, you know, problem solving questions and then not have to deal with people who use the internet or to use technology to ask is that a waste of money? Uh, that would be that would be wonderful. You know, of course, if it is a waste of money, then let's ask that question. Yeah, of course. But if we if we need to put a lot of money into research into climate change or research into vaccines or research into something else, then then we need that, and it isn't a waste of money. Mm. But and I think it would be I great think, to have people to not ask that question. I think um, it would be great, and I, but I think where it's almost the human condition that is the big roadblock. Mm-hmm. So. The video I produced on what is soon, what is it all about? I actually discuss, I say that. You're placking on your iPad and your internet is so important. And I actually, you know, talked about all the offshoots of technology that we benefit from. And yet that's the same video that will give me all the nonsense comments. Like it's completely missed. They completely miss it. It's almost like they have already a worldview in mind. They Mm. already have a worldview. And as a result, they'll ignore anything that comes in. Sure. And that's probably the hardest thing. And I think it's not a quick fix by making a video to correct people's understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's a much bigger issue. But And I think as all educators, we grapple with how do we get our students from year K to year 12 so they don't become students like that. Yeah. But then we have the added issue. Well, they're raised by parents who may have those issues and they're already so-called yep, lost. In a, in a society. You know? that, yeah. and, and that's a real issue. Mm. But I think we've got to still keep preaching that line to say the importance of that, be- becoming literate. And even if we end up converting, so to speak, two out of the 10 students mm-hmm. to have a greater understanding, well, they are going to be the ones that are going to make decisions. And hopefully they're the ones that are going to be decision makers as a result and hopefully make good decisions for us so cern absolutely is solving problems and it's it might not be obvious to everyone which problems they're solving but it doesn't mean that they're not solving problems or wasting money yep
there there are some movies that their budgets for the movies are bigger than entire space agencies. Mm. Or I think there was the 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 movie Gravity or something like I can't remember, but Interstellar or something that mm. had a larger budget than it took to get to the moon. There's some them factoid about that. Yeah. Is that a waste of money? That's right. They don't ask that question. I don't do know. They? <laughs> Maybe yeah. they do. We're yeah. just not on those forums. No, but and but but at the sand again, it's a like it's an ignorance. Oh, they're wasting money, but where's the money coming from? They don't know that. Yeah, they think that oh, Switzerland's not paying for it, or you know whatever. It is government supported, but it's a really small percentage. In fact, the amount of money that they actually the the member countries, and I'm just using CERN, of course. This is for any educational yep. institution yep. that does science. Is that the maximum portion of money they actually get from government is extremely small? Yeah, yeah. But when they all sign up, that c- contributes enough for them to do what they need to do. Yeah. So you know, and let's not talk about money spent on military purposes, right? So, but I think we are bashing against the whole human nature aspect. That is a, a bigger question that we won't answer here. That's a great answer, Paul. Mm. Thank you for that. Let me ask you the next question, mm. which is a question from our previous guest. <laughs> so uh, our previous guest was Alice Gorman, mm-hmm. and uh, she's a space archaeologist, Cool, Dr. Alice Gorman. Completely wonderful person. Had such a great chat with her about space archaeology, which it's not that, it's not that well known, but mm. it's fascinating. Down to the point of, you know, the photos that people stick up in the ISS of, of their family or their culture or their country are archaeological items now. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is cool. And they say things about the, about the person on the International Space Station and their countries. Invo- it's cultural. Amazing. Mm. So she asked this question. What work of art made a difference to how you thought about your science? <laughs> Wonderful question. Thank you, Alice. That's a very difficult question <laughs> yeah. to answer. <laughs> Thanks, Alice, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> you can take work of art to be whatever you like. Yes. Uh, there's a couple of ways we can add this. Okay, one area is if you say work of art or let's say the type of art, let's say we look at photography. Here, we, what, we, what am I doing? I'm catching photons. They're hitting a CCD. They're producing an image which captures the essence of light. And from a purely mathematical perspective, it's sight. But when you take a photo of a landscape and you've got the sun rising and the light falling in a particular way, there's beauty and I think when you look at science, you can get caught up with all the theories and the hype and so forth, but inherently it's beautiful. You know, no one, anyone listening, would say, would be, you know, totally unaffected with some of the images of the Hubble telescope. Mm-hmm. Takes. You know, there's beauty. There's beauty in the grandeur. You know, there is an aspect, and what I think, what science does, and in terms of photography. The images, whether it's the Hubble telescope, in terms of, you know, let's say one of my favorite images, the Helix Nebula, love that image. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at the deep field image, the sense of how insignificant and yet the grandeur of the universe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think when photography, such as those images, but then also the flip side, when you look at, you know, the microscopic world. Science is beautiful. I think that's just a wonderful thing that we can appreciate the beauty of um, of nature that we are in. You know, nature, creation, however you want to refer to it. There's a sense of a sense of just uh, an appreciation of the beauty that is around us. Mm-hmm. And I think in that sense of photography, 
the images that it captures is good. Does that make sense? Yeah. But in terms of photography, it does. So me, what escape is that science is beautiful. That's mm. definitely it. That's a great answer. Yeah. I think I think Alice. The point of Alice's question was uh, probably very on purpose. Uh, was to inject the A into STEM. I think it's all for her. It's very yes. much the STEAM. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, that that makes a point. I think it that totally makes your point. Mm. Uh, you know, where we're trying to, you know, science is not science or STEM is not STEM on its own. Uh, and you've said that before. Uh, you know, it, it exists in a society and culture that also has creativity and politics and everything. So, to, yeah, to, I, I, think, I think that's great. I think that's a great answer. Mm. I, I would absolutely say that the Hubble Space Telescope's uh, deep field or ultra deep field image is a piece of art. Mm. Um, it's a universal art. Mm. And I agree with you that it's profoundly beautiful. Mm. And it means... You know, a lot. Oh, same with Pale Blue Dot from Carl Sagan. You know, just sure, it's it's not a great photo, but it means a lot. It means a lot. Yes, yes. And the way that Carl Sagan managed to flip that photo from poor quality, tiny pixel that you can barely see into everything you know is that thing. is that dot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Um, I know what it's you're it's saying. it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the Hubble Deep Field, the Ultra Deep Field, is like everything we don't know <laughs> is <Isn't that> there. <laughs> um, you know, not quite. Yeah. Anyway, great answer. Well, now you get to ask a question for our next guest. Can be anything. <laughs> now can be anything. Um, can, can be, uh, you know, what did you have for dinner tonight? <laughs> so we've been talking about the fact that the biggest roadblock, I think, for the growth of understanding of science is having people engage with scientific literacy and understanding you know five to ten percent twelve percent of students take physics for example what do you think is the biggest here's the question it's a double question what do you think is the biggest roadblock for students engaging in science at high school mm -hmm. and what do you think is the solution to that <laughs> okay good biggest roadblock to getting more people doing physics physics no, science science science, science. Remember, we were trying okay. to develop okay. a scientific literacy we wanted students out there who are literate, literate in STEM. And, and, the, and the solution to that roadblock. And the solution to that roadblock. Well, just the simple questions <laughs> we ask here. Okay. <laughs> Is that too big? No, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> As in, yeah, what's, well, just, I mean, just let's ask, what's one roadblock? One roadblock what's, and what's the solution. Like and the solution to that, yeah. That would make a difference. If someone was listening to that, you know, if another teacher was listening to that, someone who's an educator in STEM, like, ooh, I'm going to riff with that idea. That's the idea. I, I like it. If I was to have an answer at that, and I, and I don't necessarily need to, but one, one roadblock is probably that students see physics as a hard subject. It is perceived as a hard subject. And I think the solution is to change the mindset so that it's not hard, but challenging. Yes, it's challenging, but that's what learning is. It's challenging. People always ask me, is physics at uni hard? And I said, yeah, it's hard, but everything at uni is hard. That's right. It's challenging, it's a, but it's a good challenge. It's challenging that when you get it, you're like, now I'm better at that, or I have grown a bit, or I know more things than I did previously. Like That's, that's how I look at it. It's challenging. Not if it's hard, it's too big. But if it's challenging, it's, it's approachable, attackable, I think. It's changing the language, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because actually the same thing. Physics is hard. 
It is hard. more challenging than some other subjects. There's it no doubt hard. about that. Well, for but, some people, right? So yes. English was hard for me. Yes. English was hard. I agree. I never got it. Me too. Like I was I'm where, exactly the same. I was saying, where yeah. is the formula to write a good essay? Yeah. Where is that? For? I couldn't work it out. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you. <laughs> my worst subject. That's right. But it's, yeah, changing that mindset. But interestingly is that students generally who end up taking physics... They take it because it is challenging. Yeah, sure. Right? It's not actually, a lot of students go, I don't want to do this study subject. It's too easy. Mm. It's too obvious. Yeah. I want something that's challenging. But in one sense, if you say it's hard, you're right. It's almost like a, ooh, a roadblock. Yeah. So it's not so much changing the idea that physics is challenging or hard. It's changing a mindset that's what you're changing. You're not changing, you're changing the language. You're changing the mindset of, okay, yes, it's hard, but actually, how about you use the word challenging? Yeah. And then they actually might step into it and say, yes, challenging, but running 100 meters under 10 seconds is challenging. Yeah. But hey, it's doable, yeah. possibly, yeah. and I'm going to push myself to do it. Yeah. But there's the issue. Mm. It's now you're changing their mindset of what they see as hard versus challenging. Yeah. That's a harder question yeah. to address. How do you fix that? Because that's there's so many societal impacts yeah. that will determine what a student does with challenging or hard. Yeah, sure. Whether they actually go, I'm going to do something. Mm -hmm. And that's a bigger question. Well, that would be my first go at that question. But, uh, but it's a good great go. I think you I make a fantastic point. Change the language. Change. It's, it's hard. How about we say challenging? Yeah. But that means you can take it on board. You can actually say, you know what? You're if you get 80% in physics, per se, because mm. it was challenging, you're going to go, whoa. Yeah. Whereas if you get 80%, let's say, in you know, knitting, and I'll just use that as a, as a, as a fluff idea, then that's, that's different. Yeah. Right? And so because you're going to get a, a, a personal satisfaction, an intrinsic benefit out of it. But unfortunately, a lot of students through high school already have given up before they mm -hmm. even get to seven year, seven year eight. They go, mm -hmm. oh, science is too hard. Oh, how do you or, or, you know, they're told science is too hard for you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, all right. So my last question hmm. is people are nerds. Everyone's a nerd, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, they could be politics, sports nerds, you know, science nerds or comic book nerds, whatever. Everyone, everyone's a nerd. Just about different things. Yep. What do you nerd out about? Like, other than, you know, teaching and YouTube and stuff, yep. what do you nerd out about? I was saying before, the other way to ask this question is, when someone stops listening to this, what is it that you want them to go and look up? What do you want <laughs> them to figure out or learn about? Well, is, I mean, my initial reaction is, of course, my photography. Sure. I've been a, I've been a passionate photographer for a long time now. Um, and it started away since I was teenagers and left a bit and came back to it and so forth. For me... It's that creative aspect in photography. So, um, you know, macro, insects, that sort of stuff. People go, ooh, the ugly spider. I'm going to go, ooh, he's yeah. a beautiful <laughs> specimen. Um, so I nerd about, about that and thinking about, you know, whether it's nature, landscape, you know, and then I love, you know, uh, photographing people. Love it. Uh, you know, even though I make a little bit of pocket money on the side and, you know, doing some portrait work and wedding stuff and that sort of stuff. What, what, what would you get someone, like let's say someone who is, who, who knows how to take a photo, but, yep. you know, basically takes photos on their phone or yep. something like that. What is, uh, yeah, what is something that they should go and find out about photography? Okay. 
if <laughs> I have my running joke, okay, yes, you got a phone, you got a good photo out of it, and so forth. But let's be honest, it's a toy. So <laughs> <laughs> a powerful toy. It's a powerful toy, absolutely. It produces a good result. What you miss out on is is that you are able to be creative in your composition and all that sort of stuff. But there is so much more with a decent camera that you're able to be far more creative with, whether it's playing with the focus, depth of field, playing with the lighting, playing with motion, whether you freeze a subject or you allow it to blur, all of those things you can't do with a phone. The phone makes the decisions in terms of mm -hmm. choosing the shutter speed, choosing the aperture, all that sort of stuff. And yes, some creative filters and so forth. But I would think if you enjoy photography, I think you should explore the capabilities of a decent camera that allows you to, you make the decisions and then that allows you to make more decisions than just the composition. You're making decisions about sure. how much light I allow here and then you know manipulating that in terms of editing, in terms of Photoshop and so forth, I think is a great opportunity. In other words, for me, right, um, yes, the phone's great to take a photo and so forth, but the camera allows me, and as I look through the viewfinder, everything closes out and I'm concentrating on what I see just in that view that I know will be captured. Mm -hmm. It's not us holding up here and see the world and so forth. No, 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 I've got tunnel vision and I can think about, okay, what do I want to convey with the image that I'm about to take? And even then I can manipulate it afterwards. And there's such a joy in taking an image and then creating something out of it in the editing process, whether it's minor creating in terms of lighting and so but or even just editing in compositing, so adding multiple elements and so forth to it, is it's such a creative outlet. Um, and so my encouragement is if you love photography and you're, and you're using the phone, explore further because it allows you to explore things greater further. Drawing back to physics, you know, you can say, okay, I learned some physics in high school. Here's my physics textbook and so forth. But you know what? That book only scrapes the surface. There's so much more, so much content that that book doesn't cover because it only covers a bigger syllabus. And there's so much more exciting stuff that is so open. You know, so for example, you know, no textbook in high school physics will talk about dark matter and dark energy, really, to all things tended. But really, that's where all the questions that are yeah. now being asked. Yeah. And explore that. Open your vision. And so photography, open your vision, but it has an analogy to back to science. You know, you can learn about something, but broaden your vision, broaden the scope, and keep exploring and keep asking questions. And how can I improve that? And in my photography, how can I improve that in terms of the lighting how can i make that object stand out how can i make that you know couple really not just look like a couple just standing in front of the camera but like i can exude an emotion how can i draw that and how can i use the light and use the shadows and use the way i pose them and the conveying you know how i direct them because i direct the people yeah that actually when they look at the photo they get an emotional response. Sure. It's not just the capture of an event. No, that it elicits something about their relationship. And, you know, and so understand that, you know, open up your view in that sense. And then, the, you know, whether it's photography or science, explore it further and allows you to, you know, if it, you know it's, it's clear that you are, are passionate about that. So give me, um, you know, obviously Photoshop is a tool that you would use yep. or... 
you know, some other tools like that. But what would be, uh, let's say someone's taking pretty good photos on their phone, yep. but you want them to expand yep. and use a, a better camera. Yep. What would be a good start for a camera that can allow you to do that? All right. Let's not do any product placements we're no, we're, no, no, we're not sponsored we're by... We're not sponsoring uh, any cameras. Canon or Nikon oh, or okay. Hasselblad. Oh, I, <laughs> I wish we were sponsored by Hasselblad. That'd be amazing. Oh, I like it. Here we go. <laughs> um, look, what you want is what your money can afford, yeah. a camera that allows you to have control over the settings. So you, what you want is something that has manual opportunities. You can change the aperture. You can change the shutter speed. You know, Even your entry-level cameras, whether it from any of the major manufacturers, is good. Um, again, it's what your budget allows. If yeah. you can only afford something that can do that, but the lens is fixed, great. Mm. But if you've got money that you can say, look, I can get a camera like this, but I can, it only has a kit lens to it, right? But then later on, you can buy a telephoto lens or wider angle lens or a mm -hmm. special macro lens, which is what I do. Um, you know, that again gives you scope, right? Um, so uh, you're looking for a camera where you have the ability to say, no, I dictate what I want, what settings I want. Yes, yeah, cool. sure, learn. There's lots of courses available. And by all means, you know, uh, contact me if you want to. I can get direct you some, some good authors, some good um, uh, sources of information. And there's wealth on YouTube anyway. But play with them. You're uh -huh. only going to learn by actually playing and trying and so forth. And that's where things such as your iPhones and so forth restrict you. They restrict you from exploring that. You know, often the best work is because oh, out of photographers is because they've tried something that they've pushed their camera to. Uh -huh. You know, the great photographers have you know dictated to the camera what they want. Mm -hmm. The camera's not making the decisions for them. Okay, they're making the decisions. Cool, uh, Paul. I think we'll uh, end it there. Thank you so much. Sure. What a great chat. It was all good. Uh, we could keep going, and I think we probably will. Um, anything final to? to add um, right now would be a great place for a plug for your YouTube channel. <laughs> so, okay. So my name is Physics High uh, on YouTube. Uh, you, if you look up Physics High, you'll get both hit for my YouTube channel, but also my associated we website. That's also the handle I use for Twitter and Facebook. So by all means, have a look at that and subscribe if, you, if it's something you like. Um, and if, if I'm going to do a plug, I also have a photography website as well. And that's stonemeadow.com.au. Perfect. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Pleasure. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.